spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. It's the dawning of a new era in episode 176 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham alongside no one. That's right. It's just me this week. So thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it. Got a big one because guess what? We know the Defenders are out on Netflix, Marvel's Defenders. We've got showrunner Marco Ramirez on this week to talk about all things Defenders. And the thing that, let's face it, we've been waiting for this. For a long, long time, ever since Daredevil first came out, Marco Ramirez was involved in that as well, so we'll talk to him about that. Ever since Daredevil started, we found out that this universe was going to exist. This is what it's been leading up to. This is what we've been waiting for, and we finally have it. So let's get some inside info on that. Not only that, yes, we're still reviewing comics a little bit more, actually, than we were before. We'll have a few reviews for you this week. This week in Geek Tame It, DuckTales had their big 24-hour premiere. I checked it out. I'll give you my opinion on it. Is it like the old cartoon that we used to love? Is it something new? Just in case you didn't get a chance to check it out, I'll let you know. As far as nerd news goes, we'll be talking about that Skybound and Amazon deal and all the stuff that's going on with Robert Kirkman and The Walking Dead and AMC. It seems like it's a mess. I'll break that down for you. And not only that, Valiant had some casting news recently, even more casting news coming up, maybe about Quantum and Woody. So I'll discuss the name that's kind of been floated around that we've talked about before for that show. I think you'll be very familiar with who it is. But up next, you know what's coming. It's what we're reading on the Down and Nerdy podcast. Hey guys, this is Chloe Bennett from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy podcast. Time to grab your long box, your laptop, your tablet, whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading. We don't want you to buy a bad book, but I don't think this one's going to be one. It's one of the biggest releases of the year for DC Comics. It's Dark Knight's Metal Number 1, written by Scott Snyder, Greg Capullo on the pencils, Jonathan Glapion on the inks, Go Pilsensia on the colors, and Steve Wands on the letters. I will say this. If you haven't been reading Dark Matter, the casting, the forge, you might be a little lost just a little bit. This is definitely something that you could pick up and read having not read those, but I would recommend going back and reading those for sure just so you have a little bit better sense and you can dive into the story a little bit better. I'm not going to spoil this issue for you, but I I will have to go into some stuff that happened in The Forge and the casting in order to talk about this book. So if you haven't read those yet, there is a little bit of spoilers coming from those. I mean, right at the beginning of the book, the Justice League is in the thick of it. And that's doesn't really, it's not really a huge part of where the story is going to go going forward, at least I don't think it is. It's a it's a nice action sequence, and it definitely builds to the mindset of the trust level with Batman, I think, is, is a big theme of this book. And if you read the casting in The Forge, it's kind of the whole, how much could Batman be responsible for now or in the future kind of thing. And that's a theme that Scott Snyder's really, really working on really well with this book and making you wonder, okay, where is this going to go and how concerned should the league and, and we as readers be about his involvement and what's going on? Now, once we hit the middle portion, maybe the latter part of the beginning of this book, there's something big that happens that definitely has to do with Batman and his world 
that that pushes that envelope even more and makes you start to wonder. But then once that kind of gets investigated, then everything starts to kick into gear and we actually get something that if you've been reading these stories for a while now, you've been waiting for, and that's answers. We get some answers as to what they at least might be looking for, what they might have been on the path of. We get the answer of what Hawkman's involvement has been in this whole thing. Of course, he's been the narrator for this story pretty much from the beginning. So we do finally get answers. If you've been waiting for those, you finally get them in metal. Now, again, it's really hard to go through this without spoiling anything, but, but things do get turned on their ear when we do get those answers a little bit. And thank you, by the way, to Scott Snyder, because two of my characters that I love the most that you don't see a whole lot in books anymore make appearances in this story, and I will not reveal what they are, but I will tell you that the nerd in me screamed out loud so hard when I saw these characters. So so thank you, Scott, for bringing those characters back to my world because I, I had a big nerd out moment when I saw them. But let's just say there's a couple of classic Batman moments in here. And, and I will say just because it's – I say classic Batman because if, if you know the character and love the character, you're going to get the whole, yeah, that's Batman, all right, reaction to certain things that happen in this story. But – I got to jump to the end and I'm not going to spoil it. Maybe you've already had it spoiled for you on social media, but I'm not going to spoil it. Batman finds something, but who you see at the end is the big, big spoiler of this book. And I got to tell you, didn't see this coming at all. And you want to talk about crossovers and worlds colliding. That is exactly what's happening here. There's a crossover that we thought we were going to get in Rebirth first, I think. And to know that this is going to happen in Metal Number 1, or at least play a factor in Dark Knight's Metal and where the story's going, has got me really, really excited. As far as the art goes, I mean, it's Greg Capullo. You can't really go wrong with Greg Capullo and company. And, and man, Greg Capullo, one thing I noticed in reading this book, Greg Capullo really, really draws Cyborg well. I had no idea how well Greg Capullo draws Cyborg. So if you ever get a chance to do a Cyborg series or, or do maybe a limited run, even some variant covers, I got to tell you, I would I would put Greg Capullo on a Cyborg, Cyborg book in a heartbeat because it just looks amazing. I mean, the art's amazing in general. The story is very, very intriguing. It's You turn the page so easily with this book, and that's one of the things that I knew I would love about it. And I got to tell you, metal hasn't been this much trouble since Metallica sued Napster. So this is definitely a pull for me. Put this in your pull box. You're going to want to read the rest of Dark Knight's Metal. And there's a nice guide in the en- at the end of the book to tell you what other books you might need to pick up as well. Now let's turn to Titan Comics and Hercules, The Wrath of the Heavens, which is written by J.D. Morvan. Lucky and Olivier Thill do the art. And this is really what I didn't kind of expect. When you see Hercules, you kind of think of, you know, classic Hercules. What they did here was it's almost like a steampunk, futuristic, dystopian type story. And it was a little weird in the beginning. And and, in the first few pages, you kind of get where they're going with this. And you think, oh, this could be cool. And then something happens a few pages after that. And I'm going, what am I looking at? What, What is this? And that seemed to be after that. There was even kind of a a shocking moment in the beginning of the book, but you didn't set it up. You didn't tell me why this was happening in the first place, and so it didn't really give me an impact on what happened. I mean, it was a it's a 
terrible thing that happens at the beginning of this book, but it's hard to have a whole lot of impact as a reader because you're not given anything to go on. You're not, you're not given any setup for it. So it's, it just sort of happens and, and it doesn't resonate. And even after that, once you get into the meat of where the story is going to go, there's no real setup. You do get that payoff and you dig, do get that explanation a little bit later on in the book and where, and where it's going on. But you have to get so far into the book to have any sort of emotional connection to it that it's really, really difficult to keep moving on. And of course, this is kind of an exercised issue too. So at times it was really hard to push on through this story. And and even when they were trying to explain to you what happened in the middle, they they kind of count on the fact that you're going to stick around into the end to get the payoff. And, and I'm not sure that that was a risk worth taking because, and then they sort of try to play off of a classic Hercules tale, I guess is the best way I could put it again, not spoiling these books. And it makes you kind of go, really? Uh, I don't know if that's the way you want to go. And then this being a limited series, too, you don't really get a sense of, okay, are you going to be able to do this in this many books? Or are you just going to bail on this idea altogether at some point? I don't know. And the relationships that Hercules forges throughout the middle parts of this book, they're kind of pushed to the side really, really quickly. And one thing I will say about this book is the redeeming part of it is the art. The art is pretty gorgeous. I mean, it is very steampunk-esque, if you like that. When I first saw the first couple panels of this book, I thought, okay, this is Bloodshot meets Dishonored. That's exactly what I thought. Of course, Titan has the Dishonored comics as well. And even the I guess the look of Hercules in certain parts of this book lent itself to being dishonored and maybe it has a little bit of themes there. Maybe that's what they're going for. I don't know, but it just didn't pay off for me, man. But the art is so, so gorgeous. It it almost makes me want to stick, stick around a little bit, but story wise, if the, this is a very, very hesitant pickup for me. So if story wise, things don't pick up, in the next issue, I, I got to tell you, I'm not sure that this is one of those that I can say, oh, we'll give it three issues to see where it goes. I'm not sure I can go there. So hopefully it picks up in the next issue and we're able to move on with that. Speaking of moving on, Valiant. We've been waiting for them to come out with the Divinity Number Zero. It is finally here, written by Matt Kent, artist Renardo Judas, and letters by Dave Lanfear. And this is one of those books that absolutely positively, if you're not familiar with the Valiant universe, you could pick it up and right away it kind of goes point by point as to what you might have missed. It does help if you read Divinity 3 Stalinverse. That will help you greatly. And you should read that anyway because it was awesome. So go back and read Divinity 3 before you read this book. It's well, well worth it because, of course, it tells the story of Divinity and Abram Adams. And what he does is... This is a little bit of a spoiler for Divinity 3. I know I said to just go back and read it. If you haven't yet, this is a little bit of a spoiler. The world has been set right again after the whole thing that Casimir did and Russia was in charge. Basically, the biggest illusion ever that was put on is now kind of set right, or at least they think it is. So what basically Divinity does, Abram Adams, is he goes through and kind of checks on everybody, you know, it's like when your waiter comes up to your table and says, everything good here? Everything look good? Just to make sure that your food's okay or that you don't need anything? Except times a million because this is really serious stuff that's going on here. So he checks on each member of the Valiant Universe one by one and even the 
few that survived from the writing of the universe. There were some characters, and I won't reveal who those are because I don't want to spoil the book. There are a few that still survived from the changeover of the universe, and they're kind of out of place, so he's checking on them as well. But all your favorite Valiant characters are a part of this book, and he kind of goes at the, okay, where are they now sort of thing and decides, do I need to do anything here? Do I not need to do anything here? And it really... The emotion of this story, and this is something that Matt Ken has done so well with Valiant, the emotion that he puts into each character interaction with Abram Adams and Divinity and whoever the character might be, you feel it. And that's not an easy thing to do, especially in a zero issue like this. And especially for somebody if you're not familiar with the Valiant universe, but even if you're not, I think you could pick this up. And get that feeling of, you know, he really cares about what's going on, especially with one character, also written by Matt Kent, that much I will tell you, that he's really, really concerned about that kind of brushes him off. So once you get to that point in the story, you'll know who I'm talking about, and it's very, very interesting. And, of course, Mishka's a part of this story as well. Again, read Divinity 3, and you'll find out why that's so important. And actually, all of Divinity, you'll find out why she's really important. The end of this book is where it gets really, really interesting. You want to talk about a zero issue actually making impact and going forward into eternity number one, which will be on sale October the 25th. This issue does that big time. You are going to want issue one of eternity so bad in October that you're going to be able to taste it once you find out what this cliffhanger is at the end. And man, Matt Kent just knows how to deliver a cliffhanger. And I was just so shocked by what happened. And you will be too when you finally read it. Renato Judas, man, the art in here is so, so gorgeous. It's almost like the swept painted art. So much detail. There's a, there's a couple of panels that occur in the woods, which is not a spoiler because it doesn't really reveal anything about any characters. And just the way the light pours through the trees and the details on the trees themselves is just incredible. And when we get towards the end of the book and Mishka is a part of it, just the detail that he gives her and so many of the characters in this book, you just fall in love with the art immediately. And I know that that's a theme from Valiant. Maybe I sound like a broken record, but come on, guys. If you don't know by now that Valiant has some of the best art consistency in the industry, I can't help you. You need to be reading more Valiant books and make this one of them as well. Divinity number zero. I guess you can call it a poll, even though it's a zero issue and it's kind of a one-shot. Let's call it a poll. Let's call it a pickup. Grab that before you get eternity number one in October. That's it for what we're reading. Up next, this week in Geektainment, DuckTales decided to have a 24-hour premiere on Disney XD. We'll talk about the first episode up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Luke Mitchell from Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. All these years later, and the theme song still gets stuck in our head, and we had 24 hours to enjoy it. So let's break down the premiere episode of the new DuckTales reboot. And yes, it really did feel like a reboot, honestly. And I think the fact that before we get into the actual story, this is going to be spoiler-filled, by the way. I think the fact that they did the 24-hour premiere was really, really smart. I mean, it was the premiere over and over and over again. It was an hour premiere. But it really gave that sense of we are really, really excited about this. So we're just going to run it for 24 hours straight. And you can watch as many times as you want and sing the song DuckTales, woo, as many times as you want. Basically, this in the song, 
I've got no problem with it. I liked it when I heard it before the premiere, and, and I like this one too. It's not quite the same, but I know that you have to freshen it up a little bit, and you kind of want to make it your own anyway, so I think they did a good job with it. So basically the story is Huey, Dewey, and Louie are living with Donald Duck on this houseboat, and he it seems like he's kind of down on his luck and maybe a little bit overprotective of his nephews, and he has a job interview. So he needs to have somebody watch them, and he can't find anybody. So he kind of reluctantly says, well, I guess we'll have your Uncle Scrooge watch you. He owes me one. Now, that's where things kind of start to get interesting, and where you kind of do the, okay, is this a reboot or is it not a reboot kind of thing in your head? Because there seems to have been some sort of falling out between Donald and Scrooge. And they don't really get into it, but there's definitely friction there. You can definitely tell when he finally drops the kids off. And, and Scrooge is very much the, you know, the miser in the beginning, too. He doesn't really treat uh, Huey, Dewey, and Louie very well. He kind of throws them in a room sort of thing and, and lets it you know, stay here until it's all over. And they're freaking out because they know that he's this great adventurer and they've heard the stories through the family and stuff like that. And that's when it starts to get interesting when you get to Webby Gell Vanderquack that comes in. And she is this spark of fire that just loves the Scrooge McDuck family and the McDuck family in, in general. And, she, you know, remember I've talked about on the show before those creepy pegboards where you've got all the things connecting and there's no non-creepy way to do that. Well, you kind of see that in this episode. So, I mean, that kind of gave me personally a laugh and just her energy alone just completely ramps up this episode. And I don't know if that's Kate Masucci or not, but I mean, that was just the energy automatically when you introduce that character got cranked up. And Huey, Dewey, and Louie, also a little bit different than they were in the original version as well. And Dewey kind of gets his own spotlight, I guess you could say, voiced by Ben Schwartz, because Dewey is the skeptic in this. And I think the fact that they introduced a skeptic was really, really cool. Instead of actually, you know, everybody throwing in, like he sees Donald in one of the pictures and thinks, nope, can't be possible. Donald Duck's never done a cool thing in his life sort of thing. So he's automatically the skeptic voiced by Ben Schwartz. And that carries through the episode a lot, actually, until it's, it's legitimately proven that this really happened. And we'll get to the ending here in a couple minutes. But basically, they find this room with all the cool stuff in it, all the pictures, these artifacts. And that's when things start to kind of turn around where you get you get this ghost monster that jumps out and they have to deal with that. And then basically, here comes Scrooge like, hey, uh, what are you doing? What's going on? I told you you had to stay where you are. And he's very much wondering, you know, do I want to be the adventurer again? Do I want that life back that I had? And you kind of see that earlier on in the episode as well. So that kind of when the nephews discovered this, he's like, you know what? Yeah, that was fun. Let's do this. Let's go find the lost city of Atlantis. And meanwhile, while that's all going on, you've got Donald who's going on a job interview because, again, down on his luck and all that good stuff. And you see him try to get a job with, I guess he doesn't know this at the time, Scrooge's arch rival, Flintheart Glomgold, which is... The, the Scottish kilt-wearing, I guess, Baron, you could call him, that is the rival of Scrooge trying to be richer. So they're going to look for the Jewel of Atlantis. But one doesn't know, the other one's looking for it. Of course, when you're on Scrooge McDuck's team and you have Launchpad McQuack, things don't exactly always go as planned. So Launchpad, I think, 
If you're looking for a character that's similar as he was in the original series, I think Launchpad is probably the most similar. And it didn't really feel, even voice-wise, didn't really feel like there was a whole lot of difference there. So it's it's really really good that I think that they did that because that just felt that felt right to me. Not that the rest of it didn't, but that one definitely felt right. And you sort of see the boys get excited that they they don't want to tell their uncle Donald what they're doing because he, they said the one thing that uncle Donald said is keep them safe, and that doesn't really happen. And of course the adventure starts, and you're seeing the boys gaining the trust of their Uncle Scrooge more and more and more and more, showing that they're capable of going through these adventures. And, of course, there's some screw-ups along the way as well. But all in all, a really nice adventure for the first one, and and, and you see what happens where they solve the mystery of the Jewel of Atlantis kind of thing at the end, and you see Dewey and Scrooge kind of come to this understanding of, hey, this really happened, this is who our family really was. But I want to jump to the ending really quick, because what we see at the end is this picture, and it's another painting, I guess you could call it, of this grand adventure. And then you see Donald is there, you see Scrooge is there, but there's a piece that is moved from that. And there's a female character that is on that. So you're wondering this whole time, you know, what is the deal with Webigil? Why is she being raised by the housekeeper, who I believe was her grandmother? Why is this going on? And could be this be the missing piece to that puzzle. One thing I think is very interesting is that it looks like they're going to go not just adventure-based, you know, show-by-show, adventure-by-adventure, nothing connecting. It almost looks like they're going to do what they've done with the Guardians animated series, what they've done with Star Wars Rebels in the past with Disney XD. Instead, they're going to go maybe to a little bit more long-form storytelling. Like, there will be almost like Villain of the Week, for, for the shows on the CW, but in this case, it's going to be, there will be an adventure of the week, but there will probably also be some sort of a connecting storyline as well. So I think that that's a very interesting thing that they're doing, and I actually think that that's one thing that will make this work really, really well. Of course, we have to wait until September 23rd for the show to come back, but you can watch it for free on YouTube as many times as you like, so if 24 hours wasn't enough for you... You can do that. So all in all, I'm looking at this. It's got plenty of stuff for kids, but it's one of those shows where if you were a fan of the original series, it is a different take. But as an adult, you can absolutely enjoy this reboot and not have to worry about when I was talking to Gray Griffin from DC Superhero Girls said, you know, did you like to work on shows where as a parent you're not going, oh, I can't believe I'm watching this for the 50th time. I feel like if you're an adult, you can enjoy this stuff as well. It's not necessarily a lot of adult humor in this. But the characters that you love are there, and I think David Tennant does a very, very good job as Scrooge McDuck. None of the voices, even though they weren't the same, none of them were off-putting, and I like the way that the characters were actually portrayed. They made them a little bit more like teenagers, I guess you could say. Maybe younger teenagers, Huey, Dewey, and Louie. So I thought that that was a really, really neat thing to do as well. So I definitely will be checking out more of DuckTales. I don't really feel like I can give a rating on this because it's not a full season yet. So I'll just say I'll definitely be watching the next episode or two to see how it goes. And I'll even bring my son in on this and see what he thinks of it as well. Coming up next, we've got plenty of nerd news to talk about and a lot of business going down. Actually, we'll talk about that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Wynn Everett, and I'm from Marvel's Agent Carter, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It's that time where we go around the nerd world and see who's suing who, because it's time for Nerd News. What? You're expecting something else? And the first story deals with The Walking Dead, or maybe you could call it The Walking Rich, or the only thing that's dead is their relationship with their network, because apparently 
The producers and creators of The Walking Dead were talking about Robert Kirkman, series producers Galen Hurd, Glenn Mazzara, and Dave Alpert have filed suit against AMC, and they claim multiple reports saying that they're claiming they've been cheated by the network regarding profits and getting their fair share. Basically, this is all kind of stemming from the fact that they're upset that they're not getting paid what they should be getting paid. Now, they get the, they were getting a flat fee of $1.45 million per episode. It's since gone up to $2.4 million. Now, the thing is, is the license fees for shows like Better Call Saul and Mad Men and Breaking Bad have been much, much higher than that. And the difference there is, is those are produced by Sony and then shown on AMC, whereas AMC Studios produces this for AMC Network. So what they're saying is, in a nutshell, it seems like, is that, hey, if these two things were separate, if it wasn't produced by AMC and shown on AMC, I'm pretty sure we'd be getting paid what everybody else was getting paid. Now, I'm going to paraphrase AMC's response, saying that the the lawsuit is completely baseless and there's no room for this, and we don't feel like this is a fair thing at all. And The Hollywood Reporter first broke this story originally. And I got to tell you, I mean, if we're getting down to what's going on here, I think part of what's really going on here is that I think the producers and creators of The Walking Dead feel like they should be a lot further along than they are. They, they think that they're, they're doing well, the ratings are still decent, but I think they feel like they could have gotten more. Not only that, but they feel like they should be getting more money because they feel like everything that's happened... And I, I've, this is just my opinion, by the way. This is absolutely 100% my opinion. I think they feel like they kind of brought AMC to the promised land. Like, a lot of things probably wouldn't be happening on AMC if it wasn't for The Walking Dead and the success of The Walking Dead. And that's my opinion. I mean, take that for what it's worth. I know that they've had other successful shows, but it seems like... Walking Dead was that flagship show that they planted and said, all right, AMC, we're here, we're ready to compete, and their ratings have done that. And they've been up against a lot of competition on Sunday nights over the years, and The Walking Dead's always fared very, very well on a cable network. I mean, you're even talking to the point where AMC, there's the story that happened not too long ago, it's going to try and launch on their web stream where, hey, if you don't want to watch commercials, pay a little extra and you don't have to watch commercials anymore. No other network is starting to do that right now, except for AMC on their own. So just think about where that's going. So I guess money-wise, I understand where they're coming from. We're talking about over a billion dollars here. And as of the recording of this show, we don't have a set dollar amount that they're looking for. So I don't know exactly how far this is going to go. I think this is a big, big battle. I think what this is more than anything is we're looking at what's going to very much be a separation of a relationship at some point between AMC and the producers of The Walking Dead. And one of the reasons I kind of feel that way is because of news that also broke on Monday where you heard that now Skybound, which is, you know, where The Walking Dead came from, that arm of Image Comics, Skybound now has a first look deal with Amazon Studios. So that brings most of their comic properties in. So could we see at some point The Walking Dead, should it survive too much longer, end up on Amazon with new episodes. Now, there's nothing to, again, nothing to substantiate that at all. But my hint tells me Robert Kirkman would like to get The Walking Dead away from AMC in a place where he can kind of have his cake and eat it too. He can do the story that he wants to do and get paid what he feels like and the other producers feel like is a fair amount 
for their products. So I don't know if this is him trying to nudge AMC to just sort of just let the show go. If you like, if you don't want to pay us, let us go. Maybe that's a little bit of the nudge that they're doing in that direction. And I'm not sure that that won't be the eventual conclusion because it's at one point you go, okay, how much trouble trouble is this really worth? And AMC does have other shows that they're promoting as well. So maybe they decide The Walking Dead in its latter stages and fans starting to criticize the show saying the storytelling isn't as good. Maybe they just decide to let it go, drop the lawsuit altogether and say, all right, if you want to go, just go. So we'll see what happens there. Now, here's something else that's very, very interesting. We talked about Disney leaving Netflix. And I feel like everybody are sharks smelling the blood in the water now because Apple just announced, according to Deadline, that they're going to be planning a $1 billion investment in what they're calling video content over the next year. And now this is for their own productions. And this was also reported in the Wall Street Journal as well. Now, what they're planning to do, according to this, is produce as many as 10 TV shows. 10 TV shows. And that's that's from people familiar with the plan. Nothing is actually set in stone yet. But here's my problem. I understand that you feel like Netflix is wounded right now. And maybe there is some sort of a gap there that you can fill and maybe, you know, topple Netflix a little bit. But let's be honest with ourselves, guys. How much are we really lacking at this point for original programming? I mean, nerd-related or non-nerd-related, how much are we lacking here? I mean, I know that we all have our favorite characters, right, that we would love to see get their own series or get their own spotlight or shows that we loved that got canceled, like me, Constantine. I would love to see Constantine come back not just as an animated series on CWC, but as a regular ongoing series. I would love to see that. Apparently, most of the rest of the TV viewing world didn't feel the same and it got canceled. I accept that at this point, okay? But that doesn't mean we should bring it back, honestly. And it pains me to say that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we should bring it back. And I think that some shows are better left canceled. And I think that some characters and some things just are better left not being done. And this isn't the first time that Apple's tried to do this. They, they also tried to launch some sort of an unscripted Planet of the Apes type thing. They, they also had a, a Dr. Dre drama series, I think it was, and, and some other things in the past as well. So I don't know. I mean, I, I guess does Apple really need to be involved in one more thing? I'm not really sure that they do. So only time will tell where this goes. And you could almost see where this next story was going, though. Because after everything that went down, after all the complaining, after all the controversy, we find out that Daniel Craig, according to multiple outlets, is going to be back as James Bond, as 007 for Bond 25 and 26. There was a lot of big talk by Daniel Craig about how he wasn't going to be back. We covered the story before, and now all of a sudden he wants to be back. It's like somebody tapped him on the shoulder and said, Hey, Danny, uh, you know that this is the 25th Bond movie, right? They're probably going to throw a lot of money into it. There's going to be this big marketing campaign. It's going to make a ton of money. And don't you want to be the guy, you know, ego-wise, don't you want to be the guy that was in the 25th Bond movie as James Bond. Oh, yeah, you kind of do. So I know he signed on for one more after that, but, I mean, these James Bond movies, even the ones that weren't all that good, a lot of them tend to print money, and let's face it, 
you know, for all the quirks that, that, that happen in the negotiations for this, Daniel Craig is a good Bond. Skyfall was good. Quantum of Solace was good. Casino Royale was good. I want to see Daniel Craig back as Bond. I just think that the whole circus that led up to this whole thing was a little bit ridiculous. So I'm glad he's back, and he says he's glad to be back, paraphrasing there from, from a story that came out earlier this week. We'll see if he's glad to be back. I certainly don't think that Daniel Craig's the kind of guy that's going to phone it in. I just wish that, you know, this mess didn't really need to happen, I don't think. And I'm not even sure he was angling for more money. Maybe he wanted to do other things, which he has in this whole, I guess, kind of hiatus from whether or not he was going to be Bond. So he has been able to do other things. So I don't feel sorry for Daniel Craig, especially since he's going to make a crap ton of money in the next two Bond movies, I'm sure, whether they're good or not, and they probably will be. Time will tell, though, how Valiant is going to do with their foray into TVs and movies. Of course, we haven't even seen the Valiant, the Ninjak versus the Valiant Universe web series yet, but we're already talking about Quantum and Woody, which we knew was coming. The Russo brothers are going to be taking on this action comedy based on the Valiant comic, Quantum and Woody. And there was a name that we'd mentioned on the show before that would be perfect for the show, and it looks like they're in negotiations. The rap reports that Emmy nominee Joel McHale could star as Woody Henderson. And come on, tell me that a wisecracking womanizer doesn't fit Joel McHale absolutely perfectly. We have talked about that on the show before and how McHale would be great. He's worked with the Russo brothers before. It makes perfect sense to do this, and it would be a nice name for Valiant to attach to a TV property. You know, they have movie properties. We've heard a lot of whispers. So this, to me, would be a nice name for them to attach because a lot of people know Joel McHale from his days in community and other things that he's done as well. And a lot of people, quite frankly, love Joel McHale as well they should. So I think that this just makes perfect sense. This this needs to happen. It's not official yet. And it's only a matter of time before Joel McHale is cast as Woody Henderson in this series. And then we'll have to find out who's going to be cast as Quantum. Speaking of casting, we're going to do some quick casting roundup news. Arrow announced that Kirk Acevedo has been cast as Ricardo Diaz, a.k.a. Richard Dragon, according to Deadline. Now, Mark Guggenheim said at Comic-Con that they were very much focused on topping Prometheus from last season. And we know that there's going to be several different villains. Michael Emerson's been cast. There's been another name cast as well for a villain in the era this season. So there's going to be some other villains that are taking part in this. But at the same time, it looks like bringing in Richard Dragon is something that's going to be very, very interesting. And, you know, he's he's kind of been a vigilante as well, so we don't know how villainous he's going to be. We know that he's been in prison for a crime he didn't commit, and he's going to go by Ricardo Diaz on the show, which is one of the kind of personas that Richard Dragon took up in the comics. So only time will tell, see what angle they take. And don't forget, there was a point in the comics where we had sort of something going on between Richard Dragon and Lady Shiva, and there's been talk about possibly bringing Lady Shiva on Arrow just from fans. I don't think they've actually talked about that internally or anything like that. We haven't heard anything from anybody that works on Arrow, but, I mean, it's not really out of the realm of possibility that they could bring Lady Shiva on eventually on Arrow, right? Should the show continue for another season unless they decide that this is it, which I don't think they are going to. So this would be a way to bring her in. And don't forget, 
Richard Dragon, Ricardo Diaz, martial arts experts. So if you want somebody that's going to give Oliver a run for his money, as far as fight scenes go, I think that this will do that. Moving on to the Hellboy reboot, the movie that's going to be coming out. Sasha Lane from American Honey has been cast, according to The Hollywood Reporter, as Alice Moynihan. Now, we know that Alice gets rescued by Hellboy in the comics, and they're saying that she could be a little bit of a love interest here. And, of course, we normally already we already have Mila Jolovich and Ian McShane, who are cast in this movie as well. David Harbour is going to be playing Hellboy. We don't really have any plot details or anything right now, so it'll be very interesting once that comes out where that's going to be headed. More casting news. This was this time from the X-Files on Fox. Of course, they rebooted in 2016. They will be back in 2018 for season 11, and Robbie Amell and Lauren Ambrose are going to be back as the FBI agents Miller and Einstein. Of course, they assisted Mulder and Scully last season. They're going to be back, and it doesn't say how many episodes are going to be back for, according to Entertainment Weekly, but it'll be... Really cool to see them back because I think they actually brought something really interesting to the show. And Robbie Mel, I thought, was particularly excellent as Miller. So maybe a passing of the torch kind of thing. At some point, we could see maybe a spinoff with Miller and Einstein taking the roles of Mulder and Scully. Or maybe you just continue the X-Files with them should this be successful. I think that that's definitely a route that they could go. Going to Hulu now, and of course we know The Runaways is going to be coming out November the 21st. Julian McMahon, yes, the guy that played Doctor Doom in those horrible Fantastic Four movies, is being cast as a character named Jonah, who apparently, according to the story by multiple outlets, is going to play a role in the kids' rebellion against their parents. So it looks like he's going to be on the side of good, or maybe not. It's Julian McMahon. He's the kind of character that tends to turn every now and then in stuff that he plays, not just in TV, but in movies. So only time will tell if Jonah is going to be on the side of the kids or not. And finally, we go to the good omens, which is going to be on Amazon. Of course, it's the adaptation of the Neil Gaiman novel and David Tennant is going to be cast as the demon. Michael Sheen cast as the angel. We already know how good David Tennant can be based on Jessica Jones as being the bad guy. As a matter of fact, they're sitting, the reports are saying he's going to be back for season two of Jessica Jones. We'll have to see how that works out. And Michael Sheen looks like he's going to be very good as the angel as well. I'm really looking forward to all the stuff that's going to be coming. Hopefully we have a lot of good things in the future. I mean, there's so much to absorb and hopefully we love it all because that's the whole point, right? Up next, we're going to defend and find out more about the defenders from showrunner Marco Ramirez. We'll talk to him next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, I'm Simone Mythic from Marvel's Luke Cage, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. The wait is finally over. Marvel's Defenders is finally on Netflix, and so excited to talk to this guy, showrunner for the series, Marco Ramirez. Marco, how you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing great. As a matter of fact, I mean, since the beginning of these Netflix series, the anticipation has been building for fans for this from that moment. So as someone who's been involved with this since the first season of Daredevil, how excited were you on that first day of shooting for Defenders? It really felt, I mean, I remember just being in the writer's room on, on day one of Marvel Netflix partnership, which was Daredevil. I, I remember being in that room and, and being able to, you know, just everyone's pitching ideas and everything. And I remember Jeff Loeb mentioning you know, oh no, that's definitely going for Defenders, or hey, you know, remember later that that'll be for Defenders. But it always felt like, you know, when your parents talk about maybe someday, you know, after after summer we'll go to Disneyland, or oh no, that I'm going to that's that's for the wedding, like that's way, way, way from now. Um, <laughs> and so really, you know, on day one felt like, oh my God, this this is finally it's the heat of it. It's I'm looking at like three metaphors, but. Uh, yeah, it really, really weird. It's like, oh, we're finally doing the thing that we've been talking about for so long. 
Um, so, uh, I mean, if, if the fan anticipation uh, wasn't, wasn't enough, which is in me, which is, which is always there, but I also just felt like just as, as, a, as a writer, it felt so weird to kind of just finally be there doing it. Um, and, uh, and I hope people really like what we came up with. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, you guys just released a clip not too long ago of Misty Knight finally meeting Colleen Wing, which is one of the ones that I've been waiting for. Now, was there any particular pairing of characters or maybe even confrontations that you were looking forward to most or any that stood out to you? I mean, I, I, could, I could probably throw up the entire next three podcasts for you talking about. <laughs> talking about uh, What's your favorite, that, then? I mean, Danny meeting Luke. Danny meeting Luke was probably the one that everyone wants, was the buzziest and wanted to talk about. Uh, Colleen and, and uh, Misty, obviously, is another one that just kind of felt so electric and great to be on set for. But if I had to pick one that I, in particular, really, really loved and, and, and just felt like it was a great gut punch was the day that Matt and JJ met on screen. It really felt like finally uh, these two characters that, that I've loved for so long. Um, and also just reminded me of so much of, of the Amadro thing to, the, to the, you know, the moment in the comics, in, in the Bendis comics, uh, where they meet. It felt like, uh, oh my God, we're really shooting this thing. Um, and and it's, very, it's very simple. It's not like, you know, I think it's kind of been one of, one of the big ways comics and characters have to meet each other is, you know, in a fight. You know, it's a mistake. And, and Tolkien, suddenly Tolkien, someone else around, they don't really on the same side, and they, they punch each other like that. And that's like a big kind of explosive way to meet. But just having Matt Murdock walk into a room that JJ was in and finally having them be in the same room uh, with electric. I didn't lose much now just thinking about it. Oh, absolutely. And one of the things that I've always loved and actually is always giving me goosebumps about these shows is how leading up to this, the villains have always seemed to have meaningful and sometimes emotional purpose. So without spoiling anything, what can you kind of tell us about Sigourney Weaver's character, Alexandra? I mean, it's, she, she, it, we tried in every way to play to her strengths uh, because, which are many, uh, because we were imagining this character for Sigourney Weaver from day one. And so it was very, it was very bizarre and a wonderful blessing when we finally got the news that we had officially closed the deal on casting her. Um, but uh, all I can say is she, she was never, she, she, I, I think the thing that even beyond any scenes she read, uh, that, that she might have liked, or, or you know, the idea of coming and working at the Marvel, in the Marvel world, I think she really loved the uh, portrayals that other antagonists in the Marvel world, um, in the TV world, had, ha- had, had given. So I remember, I think they sent her, you know, I think she saw, you know, the David Tennant performance, the Vincent Gennafi performance, the Herschel performance at that point. Those were all kind of public, and she was like, oh, God, okay, I don't want to speak with her, but I, I think in our early conversations, I remember her saying, like, I'd, I'd love to come play and be one of those, um, because it felt so, I mean, and I can say this because I didn't have anything to do with the writing of J.J. or of Luke, um, but those characters felt so three-dimensional and so likable, uh, you know, and, and it's just not, it's, they're not villains they're not villains in the, in the most kind of quote-unquote comic booky sense. They're really kind of complicated people, and I think she really wanted to come uh, play and be one of our comic book kind of complicated people. Absolutely. As a writer, given the fact that you only had eight episodes for this Defender series, how much emphasis when you were in that writer's room was on pacing and how you all were putting the story together and kind of when every woman had come together as well? Well, I think Netflix and Marvel gave us a lot of freedom in terms of how many episodes we were going to really do. So, so really, it felt like we kind of could come to them and say, "This is this is this is, this is the correct number. This is the story you want to tell, and this is the correct number of episodes we think we want to tell it." Um, there was never kind of a prescribed, you know, this needs to fail so many hours of of uh, of, of programming kind of mandate. Um, so it felt really organic. We just kind of came up with a story in the room that we really wanted to tell that would involve all four characters equally 
um, that, that, that we thought would be kind of thrilling and fulfilling after four years of waiting. Uh, and so it, it really just felt really organic. I know it's the, it's the most boring way to answer that question, but it wasn't like we were filling, uh, you know, a quota. It was entirely like this is what it will take to tell the story correctly without, you know, without necessarily, you know, either overseeing our welcome or, t- or, or you know, giving the audience, like shooting the audience. Um, this feels like the correct amount of episodes. And so they were on board and uh, hopefully I think it works. No, that makes perfect sense. We're talking to Marco Ramirez, showrunner for Marvel's Defenders on Netflix. You can binge it all right now. Now, Marco, it's no secret that you also have experience as a playwright. So if you could cast one character from the Defenders in a play, who would it be and what famous role would you cast them in? Man, that's good. That's a great question. Jesus. Um, I would want to watch... I think I'd want to watch specifically Luke. Uh, would I want to watch? Yeah, I'd want to watch Luke Cage's Othello. Yes. Oh, yes. That is so perfect. He fits the role really well, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, also, I'm, sure, I'm sure I can. It's, I mean, I, I also would love to see my culture play Othello. Well, um, then but, there's uh, that. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's the one. Just putting that out there, Broadway folks, by the way, in case you're listening. Yeah. <laughs> So now, Marco, every show leading up to this has featured kind of an epic hallway fight scene, and we kind of see a tease of that in one of the trailers that we had. So do you have a favorite up to this point, and how'd you guys find a hallway big enough for this thing? We, okay, do I have a favorite of the, of the, of the fight scenes on any of these shows? Yeah. I ha- yeah, I do, I do. And I have to say, again, I can't, I can't say, I, I feel weird. I don't, I don't want to answer it by saying it's one of the ones that I worked on. Um, because that just feels not, not <laughs> also not honest. I love <laughs> the, the episode 103 of Luke Cage. Uh, I believe Matt Owens wrote this episode. Um, I forget the name of the director, but it's the episode where he, where they, it's, it's, he walks into the projects with, and he just, and it's like a, a, a Wu-Tang needle drop. I think it's bring the ruckus. Yes. And he like holds yes. the car door over a guy, kicks down a gated entryway. Like that is my favorite of, on any of the fight scenes on, on, uh, on, on any, to, to me, my personal favorite. But musically, it tells the correct story. The right spirit of it, it's written so well. That's, that one is, is the one that I remember, I remember texting Mac because we're friends. I remember texting him like, holy shit, I can't believe this is real. <laughs> um, I think I did a backflip in my, in my house. I think we all did a backflip on that, that one. Now, Marco, a lot of the previous series have only had one season, and there were some unanswered questions that was kind of left to their conclusion. So without spoiling anything, in The Defenders, how quickly can fans expect to find out the aftermath of some of those shows, if at all? I mean, I think uh, ideally what the the plan was is that you could just kind of come to episode one and more or less kind of get a very quick semblance of psychologically where each of these characters are so you would understand the aftermath of their previous stories. So we just jump right into it. Oh, that's awesome. That, that's, that's very good to know that it's going to be right there in the first episode. Marco, before we get you out of here, yeah. you were at Comic-Con. It was a great response, and a lot of fans actually got to see the first episode at Comic-Con. So what was your favorite reaction on social media to that so far? What was my favorite reaction? I mean, I, I'm a big fan of like the, 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 uh, the, the hand clap emoji between words. <laughs> so I did love, like, there was somebody who just sort of like, Defenders, hand clap is, hand clap lit. And that one, that one was my favorite. And, and I think that, also it was me. I wrote it. <laughs> and I think that's going to describe it quite well. If you haven't started binging it yet, make sure you binge Marvel's Defenders on Netflix multiple times because we know that's how amazing 
It's going to be at showrunner Marco Ramirez. Thank you so much for taking time with us. Thank you. Have a good one. Thanks so much to Marco Ramirez, showrunner for Marvel's The Defenders on Netflix for joining me this week. So much great inside information that he gave. And the fact that we know that since season one of Daredevil, they had plans for The Defenders. They were thinking long-term the entire time. And it's really, really paid off. So make sure you're binging the Defenders as much as possible. I plan on binging it multiple times. I've had a chance to see a few of the episodes already. And, ah, man, I just can't wait to finish. I think I'm going to go do that right now. That's it for episode 176 of the Down and Nerdy podcast. You can find us on social media, facebook.com slash down and nerdy. We're also at down and nerdy 757 on Twitter and on Instagram. You can find our YouTube page, a whole bunch of links on our website, downandnerdypodcast.com. You can find a whole link of where you can follow us on various outlets. You can subscribe to us on SoundCloud, on iTunes, Google Play Music. Also find me on Twitter at James Ace Witham. That's W-I-T-H-A-M. But again, all this information, including all the stuff that would happen on this week's show, you can find it at downandnerdypodcast.com. Thanks for listening, and remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd. So let your fan flag fly, and be good to your fellow nerds.